Good morning, church. Mary. Good to see you today. It's a chatty new year. Happy 2015. Is anyone else like me and you're disappointed that it's 2015 and we still don't have hoverboards? I mean, like, when I was a kid, I mean, 2015, we were certainly getting hoverboards. That's at least what Michael J. Fox told us. So, um, iPads are cool and all, but they're no hoverboards. No, hey, uh, just a little bit of family news for you here before we jump into the sermon today. I want to let you know that um, just some some beloved friends and members of our community here, uh, the Andrews, need our prayers. Uh, Mary Ann Andrews is really involved here. Her husband, Gene, also a part of our church, died over the holidays in a tragic ice fishing, fishing accident. So it's just been a really hard time um, for Mary Ann and her family uh, there's going to be a memorial service this coming Saturday, January 10th at 10 a.m. in the chapel. And Pastor John's going to oversee that. But please do keep the Andrews family in your prayers um, as they're just dealing with this, this really sudden and tragic uh, reality in the new year. All right, well, that's, there's no way to segue out of that in an easy way, but I'll, I'll just say this. My wife and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary last Sunday. And it's the, yeah, thank you. I know that applause was for Amy, 16 years with me, like that, woo. Anyway, um, praying that she can make it a few more. Uh, no, it's actually one of those, Matt laughs because he knows, he offices next to me. Um, no, I, uh, we uh, had the Sunday off. It's the Sunday after Christmas and I wasn't preaching and so Amy and I thought, oh, we can just go to church like normal people and... There's this church that we really wanted to try out, that we really like a lot, and so we just came as as normal people to this church and sat in the pews, and we're really looking forward to just this great, stellar message, and then the guy got up to preach, and right away announced that he was the executive pastor, and and so we just, our hearts just sunk, because you know, when the executive pastor preaches, but then he preached, and it was amazing. Is he in here? Where are you, Dan? Dan Larson, our executive pastor, preached last Sunday, if you weren't with us, and just did a phenomenal job trying to steal my role as the funny pastor. We'll talk about that another time. But No, hey, today we're jumping into a new series that we're going to be in for this entire month called Destined, and it's really about our destiny as individuals, but it's even bigger than that. It's about the destiny that God has for His church and our mission to accomplish His plans in this world. And today I want to jump us into that series by asking you a question and telling you a little bit of a story. Are there any foods in this world that you dislike so much that if you even attempt to eat them, they will literally cause you to gag? In other words, it's not that you simply dislike these foods. These are foods such that you cannot force yourself to swallow them. And if you try, your body will launch launch countermeasures to ensure that this particular food will not reach your stomach. Have any foods like that in your life? Taco Bell? (laughs) Pastor Gabby Viesca. From Mexico is too snobby for Taco Bell, I guess. <laughs> well played, lady. Well played. Well, I don't. I don't have personally a lot of foods like that. I'm one of these people that just loves 
all food. I like, I can pretty much eat anything. But there is one food in particular that I absolutely cannot eat. And it's fruit salad with grapes in it. Now it sounds kind of strange, right? I, I like grapes and I like fruit salad, but I cannot eat fruit salad, fruit salad with grapes in it. And here's why. Um, when I was in the fifth grade, we were visiting my grandmother who was in a nursing home um, where she was staying to recover fr- from some surgery that she had had. And while we were there, um, this older woman, a resident of this particular nursing home, like beckoned me over to her. And because I was just a nice, shy, polite, young fifth grade boy, I walked over and she was sitting at a table eating her lunch. And she began to talk to me. And as she did, I picked up right away that this woman wasn't all there. She was suffering some, from some fairly severe dementia. And she talked to me about a number of things, but then she began to insist upon sharing her lunch with me. And as I looked down at her tray, she had been eating this, like, you know that fruit salad that comes in the cans? The, yeah, uh. So she'd been eating some of that, and some of it had actually, I think, been previously eaten, to say it the nice way. And it was all just sort of mixed together. And she spooned up this big spoonful, and she was trying to get me to take this bite, and right in the middle of this bite was this giant grape. And so ever since that moment, there is no chance of me ever eating fruit salad with grapes in it. If it's a melon salad, all good. If it's got bananas and apples and strawberries, excellent. If you put grapes in my fruit salad, I am out. It will not even touch my plate. Just the thought of eating fruit salad with grapes in it, I'm like struggling to get through this this, this description right now, kind of makes my gag reflex begin to quiver. You know that feeling? Like, This morning, friends, we're going to talk about what it is that activates God's gag reflex. What it is in this world that causes God to want to hurl or puke or barf or ralph or lose his cookies. And if those words seem a little too strong or too descriptive or too explicit for Sunday morning church, good. Because today we are talking about something that doesn't simply anger God or grieve God or sadden God or disappoint God. This morning we are talking about something that disgusts God. Something so nauseating, so repulsive to Him that His gag reflex is actually activated by it. So this opening illustration makes you feel a little bit squeamish, then you are actually well on your way to understanding what our verses today are trying to communicate to you and me. Today we're looking at a part of Scripture. It's it's a short letter that Jesus writes to the first century church in the city of Laodicea. And Laodicea is a a town located in the region of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. You can see it there on the map. And if you zoom in, you can see Laodicea right there, um, underlined in red. Now, to understand these verses, you really have to understand this city, what they're all about, sort of the culture and vibe and personality of of this place. And so let me just give you um, some stories from the history of this city so you can understand... Um, the backdrop and what Jesus says here on a little bit deeper level. First of all, you need to know this. Cities in the ancient world were always in competition with one another. Competition was just a way of life in the Greco-Roman culture. You wanted to be number one. You wanted the emperor's temple to be built in your town. You wanted the best economy. You wanted the biggest arena. You see, becoming the biggest and the best, that was the Greco-Roman way. Now, does that sound similar to a culture any of us might be familiar with? 
Are you familiar with a culture where cities compete? Um, where they hold on to things as like kind of their, as a part of their identity, where they actually posture themselves and jockey for major sporting events or for companies to come their way, right? We're very familiar with this culture because it's, it's real similar to the one we live in. Laodicea was actually a city that always dreamed of being recognized. They were a city that, that hoped for a significant place in the Roman Empire. Actually, in 2680, 26 years after Jesus was born, this city put a bid in to be the chosen site for a temple that was to be erected to honor the Greco-Roman Emperor Tiberius. So they put this bid in. We want the, the Tiberius Temple in our town. And word came back and they got rejected. They got turned down. And here's what Rome basically told them. He, they basically said, Sorry, your city just couldn't pull this off. You're just not big enough. You're just not rich enough. You're just not significant enough for this honor. So for the next 30 years, Laodicea went to work. And as they did, their wealth grew exponentially. In fact, they got so rich that in A.D. 60, 34 years later, 34 years after they had been rejected by Rome, an earthquake hit the entire region and Laodicea refused government help. They basically told Rome's version of FEMA, just go home. We got it covered. We don't need you. We've got so much money and ability and and self-sufficiency here that we can take care of this on our own. And as it turns out, this self-sufficient, independent attitude found in Laodicea was so pervasive that it it had even begun to seep into the church. And so Jesus references this event in the letter that he writes And he's trying to make a point. He talks about this moment where they reject Rome and they say, we are self-sufficient. We don't need your help. We don't need anything from you. Listen to what Jesus says. He says this to the church at Laodicea. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, Jesus uses this very familiar event, this very well-known event that everyone um, talked about. He references that to teach them something about their spiritual condition. And this is what he says. Self-sufficient spirituality sickens God. Self-sufficient spirituality sickens God. And friends, I was thinking this week, maybe there's not a more important message for 21st century American Christians than this. You see, we live in, in a similar culture, a culture that says be independent, be self-deficient, self-sufficient. Don't depend on anyone. Do your own thing. That's what it means to be an American. And just like in Laodicea, I fear that sometimes that very attitude has seeped into the church. You see, we're so individualistic. We're so me-focused. Sometimes we get this idea that God wants to use me. That God wants to use you to change the world. And let me tell you this, friends, He doesn't. You've heard sermons otherwise. Pastors have said, God wants to use you to change the world. He doesn't, actually. That's wrong. I may have even said that before. I, I, I take it back. God never wants to use just you. He always wants to use us. 
God's plan is always for us. He always works through community. Sometimes he uses individuals to rally communities and lead communities, but his ultimate plan is for communities of believers come together to advance his mission and plans in this world. That's his plan. That's his focus. God's redemptive strategy is to use communities of people. He calls those communities churches. They're not buildings, they're not campuses, they're not staffs, they're groups of people come together in the name of Jesus, surrendered to his will, empowered by the Spirit to go out and advance the kingdom of God in this world. That's God's plan. He wants to use us. But that's not what's happening in Laodicea. You see, this is a very affluent, proud, driven city. And they had a lot going for them. They had a lot of reasons to be proud, a lot of reasons to feel confident and self-sufficient and independent. You see, Laodicea was located at the intersection of three main roads. Three main roads that ran right through this region. And this enabled them to very easily import and export goods. You see, they had a lot of access to money. A lot of gold was flowing right through Laodicea. Tremendous wealth in this city because of where they were. And this is why Jesus writes to them, and in verse 18 he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich. See, Jesus says, you put so much faith, you put so much trust in the gold that's flowing through your city and your material possessions and this position in the kingdom that you've, you've attained that you've forgotten where the true riches are. You've lost sight of the gold that will never fail you, that will never fall away, that will never slip through your fingers. That's found in me. That's found not in self-reliance or self-dependence, but in God-dependence. Laodicea was also home to a state-of-the-art medical school that had discovered and began to produce this eye salve. Now, in the first service, I pronounced it salve. And then someone told me in, the, in between services that it's actually salve. Were they right? Is it salve or salve? My wife's laughing at me because she knows I have a propensity to mispronounce words sometimes phonetically. Salve. So there's this eye salve, not salve, salve, that was produced in Laodicea and it was extremely effective for treating eye disorders. You have to understand, this is like the times of very primitive me- medicine. If you had trouble with your eyes, if you had an infection in, in your eyes, you could lose your sight and there was nothing they could do for you. But this ointment seemed to heal and restore and help people in in these conditions. And so this was a a huge advancement in medical technology. And so people were coming from all over to gain access to this salve they were producing in Laodicea. And so this made them feel special and important and independent again. And so Jesus writes, I counsel you to buy from me salve to put on your eyes so you can... See, so you can really see. You see, true sight, true vision comes from trusting me, not yourself. You fooled yourself into thinking you can take care of things and handle things on your own. And then finally, uh, Laodicea was located right in the center of this very fertile river valley. And this enabled them to graze these big fat sheep. And these big fat sheep of Laodicea were famous around the world for producing this very tightly woven black wool. It was this fabric that was all the rage all over the empire, all over the world. Like if, if Joan Rivers was broadcasting from the Academy Awards on the red carpet, she would be in Laodicea and she would be talking about the garments made from this black wool fabric. Everyone, you've got to have it. You've got to wear it. It's the best stuff. 
And so Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. You see, to depend on this wool and these garments and these material possessions is actually, in the end, shameful. It's a road that leads to nothing. So trust in me. Depend on me. Be about the things of the kingdom. Jesus is saying to this church, you've lost your way. You've forgotten your mission, church. You've forgotten what's most important in this world. Come back to me. You see, Jesus says all this because he knows that this church and any church is destined for something so much greater, so much more significant, something so much more meaningful and impactful than the self-sufficient life that we are constantly tempted to embrace. And so you have this sense that Laodicea, this growing, thriving, commercial center where people could go to just find earthly security and all this confidence, that's, that's the kind of place it was, except there was one thing. There was one major drawback to living in Laodicea. One soft spot, one source of embarrassment for this city. Do you know what it was? It's water. It's water was horrible. Not an easy problem to fix in the ancient world. See, Laodicea was actually famous for its water being so nasty that people would get sick from drinking it. And to make matters worse, Laodicea had two chief rival cities. There were two cities, two neighboring cities that were kind of its chief competitors, competed with it for status and stature in this region. There were the cities of Aeropolis and Colossae. And both of these cities, in contrast to Laodicea, they didn't just have good water, they were known for and founded on their water. So Laodicea's greatest weakness was highlighted even more by the fact that it was her chief competitor's greatest strength. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about Aeropolis. This is is some amazing stuff. By far, the most impressive and well-known feature in Aeropolis was its natural hot springs. This is a city of natural hot springs. Some of you have been to cities like that. There's a city like that in Colorado, I think in northern Florida, where there's just hot springs. I think over in Montana, there's some of these, obviously, as well. Um, The water of Aeropolis... Uh, was said to actually be medicinal and effective at relieving ailments such as arthritis, skin diseases, and even abdominal problems. So you think about, again, an ancient world where there is no medicine, there is no doctor, there is no cure for your ailments, and now you can go to a city and sit in the water and your pains and your problems can be relieved. You think that was a draw. And there was some legitimacy to these claims. This is not just myth. In fact, one of the chief minerals in the water at Aeropolis is calcium oxide. And calcium oxide is one of the chief ingredients in some of our modern medicine even today. Tums made from calcium oxide, um, milk of magnesia, just to name a couple of things. And so because of this, because of this mineral-rich, healing, therapeutic water, Aeropolis became sort of this R&R center for the Roman military. The Roman military, when they were on break, they would actually go to Aeropolis to sit in these hot springs, to sit in these baths. They had their own private military baths, not open to the public. Do you know how much economy, do you know how much, how much money came to Aeropolis because the military guys were going there when they were on break? This was a source of pride for the city. And if you look at the map, you can see that in between Aeropolis and Laodicea is this river valley. We talked about it, right? So there's like... 
Aeropolis is on one side of the valley and Laodicea is on the other. And probably the most famous landmark um, in the city of Aeropolis is this cliff of hot springs. See, Aeropolis is built kind of on a cliff and it kind of slopes down and here's the valley and Laodicea was over here. Right on this cliff is a series of these really beautiful hot springs where people would go to sit and soak. And so if you lived in Laodicea, this city of terrible, horrible, awful water, you would look across the river valley to your rival city and you would see their water staring you in the face. Their greatest resource just sort of taunting you and reminding you of how useless and awful your water was. Now, in contrast to Aeropolis, Colossae was also known for its water, except Colossae didn't have hot water. Colossae had cold water. You're a little gun on that. Hot, cold, opposites, okay? Um, Colossae was actually located at the foot of Mount Cadmus, which was covered in snow for most of the year. And so these icy, cold, fresh water streams would flow down the mountain into the city and they would have cold water almost year-round to drink. Now again, remember, these are the days when there is no refrigeration. We take cold water for granted. They did not have cold water in this day and age, but they did in Colossae. Now Laodicea, Laodicea, they got their water piped in from about six miles away. They did not have a natural water source available to them. They didn't have natural hot springs. They didn't have cold water from that mountain. So they actually had to pipe their water in. And the water they piped in ended up becoming a combination of the hot mineral water of Aeropolis and the cold mountain water of Colossae. And so when you mix the two, you get what? Lukewarm, tepid water. Wasn't cold, wasn't hot. It was this mineral-heavy water that was almost undrinkable and unusable in any, in any way. If any of you have ever been to California and tried the tap water, you have a little bit of an idea, just a smidgen. Uh, now, the, the water in Laodicea, as they piped it in, it was so saturated with minerals that it would literally clog the pipes. And so archaeologists have found where they would lay these pipes to pipe the water in, and then a pipe would clog, and they'd just lay another pipe right alongside. And so they find these, these sort of series of clogged-up ancient pipes as the Laodiceans desperately tried to get water to their city. You can see it there in the picture. Now, with all that as the backdrop, Jesus is writing a letter to this church at Laodicea, and he draws on this water problem, this problem that was notorious in Laodicea, and he's trying to make a spiritual point. He's trying to teach the church something about who they are and who he longs for them to be. And this is what he says. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, our two main verses today. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds, church at Laodicea. I know who you are and how you're living and what you're doing and how you're responding as Children of the gospel, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit there in Greek more literally means vomit. You are neither hot nor cold. 
You're not like the water of Colossae, refreshing and rejuvenating. You're not like the water of Oropolis, restoring and therapeutic. Church of Laodicea, you are just like the water of your city. You are good for nothing. You are not an asset. You are not useful. You are not having impact for the kingdom of this world. Therefore, you trigger my gag reflex. You are like fruit salad with grapes in it. And I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. See, God doesn't like fruit salad with grapes in it either. Now, before we go any farther, let me state something real explicitly here. The Bible does not talk about works-driven faith. The Bible is not about works-driven faith. You do not get faith by doing good works. The scriptures are very clear that peace with God, forgiveness for our sin, a restored relationship with, with Him, all comes through the gracious, free gift of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection on the cross. You cannot earn it. You cannot earn God's favor. However, this passage is about how we live on the heels of knowing God and receiving His grace and understanding His love for us. This passage is written to the church, to people who have declared Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the passage about faith-driven works. Works that come on the heels of faith. And if you're going to be part of my church in this world, Jesus says, then it is my desire for you to use your gifts to have impact for my kingdom. He says, your response, the appropriate response of you, Christ followers, the church of Jesus Christ, is to use now in response to God's love and grace in your life, your assets and abilities and talents and experiences and every opportunity that you can to serve God and advance His kingdom and purposes in this world. And Jesus communicates this desire to the church at Laodicea in the strongest possible language. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying if you are a Christ follower and you're not engaged in serving and working and helping and joining the church and advancing the mission of the kingdom of God, then God's kind of sick. He's sick about that. He's sick about your uselessness in the kingdom. Now, that sounds a little bit harsh, but it's exactly what these verses say. You see, sometimes these verses, you've heard them before, right? You're neither hot nor cold because you're lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Sometimes the way people interpret those verses, the way you've maybe heard that preached before, is like, be really fired up for God, be like boiling hot, be like super passionate, excited for God, or be completely ice cold, like you don't care about God at all. But God would rather have you be like completely ice cold than just lukewarm. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, I'm pretty sure God would have, rather have you be like lukewarm about your faith than ice cold in, in, that, in that paradigm. What's being said in this verse is, Be cold, be hot, but don't be lukewarm. Be useful, be rejuvenating, be refreshing, be therapeutic, be be redemptive, but don't just be nothing. Don't just be useless and just don't just live a life of no impact. Have an impact somehow through your, your frigid coldness or your piping hot hotness. Have an impact somehow, but don't, as a follower of Jesus, just be lukewarm. Don't just not use your gifts and have impact in this world. That makes God nauseous. Why? Because God knows there is so much more to live for. One thing I love about this passage 
And that it's so hard and harsh seeming, like God's like, if you're not living for me and advancing the kingdom, then I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And you're like, wow, that's pretty intense. But then we're told later in, in the passage why God speaks so strongly. It says this in verse 19. He says this, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. See, this, this rebuke, This hard truth is spoken out of love for his people because God knows there is so much more. God knows there's a better life than just living a self-sufficient, like comfortable existence until you die. God says to advance the kingdom, to join the mission of the church, to actually be the church that you're supposed to be is a rich, satisfying, rewarding, fulfilling life. And he so does not want you to miss it. And so he speaks emphatically here to his people. And that's why we're doing this series, friends. That's why we're spending four weeks here at Cedar Mill talking about our destiny as the children of God, our destiny as the people of God our destiny as Cedar Mill Bible Church and how God longs to use us to advance His plans and purposes in this world. And when I say us, I don't mean corporate church us. I don't mean building us or staff us. I mean us, like every single one of us. Because guess what? We're the church. You're the church. When you talk about the church, you're talking about yourself. Because the church is just the people. I, I, I so want to change that. I told Pastor Matt this a couple weeks ago. I want to change the sign out front to say, Cedar Mill Bible Church meets here. Because this isn't Cedar Mill Bible Church. Excited about the new construction over there. It's going to be a great space and God's going to use it. But this place is not the church. You're the church. And God wants to see His church having impact. You were destined for impact. We were destined for impact. Because we believe that down to our bones, we're going to spend four weeks talking about what does it mean to really be the church? What does it mean to use our gifts, your unique abilities and experiences and passions and heart to join the church and be a part of advancing God's mission in this world? We're talking about the significance of that, the importance of that, the importance of it for you, for us, and for the world that we live in. But mostly, God wants to say, do not miss out. Don't miss this destiny he has for you to be a part of his people. When I was about 12 years old, one of the greatest movies ever came out. It was uh, the movie Top Gun. And when I was 12, Tom Cruise was about the coolest dude in the world as Maverick, the renegade fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. And my parents let me see this movie, and I just wanted to do a little parental warning here. This was before the days of PG-13, so they slid this one in on PG. But I learned later as a youth pastor when my students fooled me that it's actually more like R. So don't let your kids watch it, but I'm going to use it as a sermon illustration today because there's some scenes in here. But with that being said, as a disclaimer, Tom Cruise was amazing in the show. Like, he was tough, he was macho, he was cool. He was, he was sort of like being pulled along towards this destiny that he had to be this great fighter pilot and follow in the, in the shoes of his father and, you know, like fly these planes at Mach 11 and do all this stuff. It was amazing, it was inspiring, it was cool. 
So Tom, he's cruising along. He goes to fighter pilot training. What? He goes to fighter pilot training and he gets all the skills he needs. He's top of his class and things are going well and his destiny is before him. And then all of a sudden, there's a tragic accident and he loses his co-pilot and Tom begins to lose his way. And he steps back from living the life that he's supposed to live and fear and self-sufficiency and insecurity and selfishness, all the things start to get in his way, start to prevent him from becoming this person that everyone in the theater knows he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be this great fighter pilot. Take the mantle, step forward, Tom. But he's being held back because of just the forces of this world. But then, the big moment comes. He barely passes his final exam and now he's like a full-fledged fire pilot and then the bad guys come. There are like enemy MiGs in the air. Remember this scene at the end? And it's like the Iceman's up there, Val Kilmer, who some people don't like but I thought was awesome. And he's up there fighting and all the other guys and it's like, well, who should we send up? And they're like, should we send up Maverick? And it's like, I don't know, is he ready to go? And then the commander decides like, yeah, we're sending up Maverick. And Tom goes up in the air and he's trying to decide, will I engage? And he flies around for a while and it's like he just can't bring himself to step into his destiny and fulfill his purpose in the world. So he's held back from engaging the enemy. And he's just kind of, and they're like, get in the game, Maverick! Engage! Fight! Do what you're supposed to do! And finally, finally, like Maverick has this breakthrough and he engages the enemy and he like shoots him down and he becomes the hero. It's amazing. That's all I got on piano. But so, <laughs> so this is a theological jump, but I think it's going to work. There's this moment where the movie Top Gun and the message it sends and the message of the Bible overlap. I know that's hard to imagine. But the message is this. You were created for something. You were created for something great. You were created for something beyond yourself. And at times, you might get lost from that purpose, but God longs to pull you back in because He wants to use you to accomplish something so great in this world and He does not want you to miss it. And His plans and His purposes come when His children... Join a community of like-minded Christ followers, surrendered to Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they decide nothing will hold us back from advancing the kingdom of God and His plans and His purposes and His mission in this world. Friends, the question of this series is, what's your part to play and will you play it? Will you embrace the destiny God has for you? Will you help Cedar Mill embrace the destiny that God has for us? Will you play your role? Will you play your role? We're going to move into a time of communion. And I just want to ask you to consider this question. Am I engaged with the bride of Christ? Am I playing the role that God has designed me to play in this body of believers such that the kingdom of God is advancing through this church? And some of you, this will just be a moment of of like reaffirmation. You'll look at your ministry, you'll look at the places of service in your life and you'll say, yes, I am serving exactly the place God wants me to serve. For some of you, you'll say, 
I'm not serving at all or the place where I'm serving just doesn't seem like a good fit. Just lay it before the Lord today. Just say, God, help me to see who I am, where I can fit, and how I can be a part of accomplishing the destiny you have for me and your kingdom in this world. Come to the tables. Remember that we serve because we were first served by Christ. Take the body, the bread, the blood, the cup. to Get back to your seat. Spend some time with God. Remember all He's done for you and then ask Him, God, how would you have me live in response? Let's pray. God, I pray that the spirit of self-sufficiency and individuality would just be cast out from this place. I I pray, Lord, that places where that lives in me, you would just dig it up and remove it. That in full submission to you, in full dependence on you, and in full partnership with this church family that you've placed me in, that you would... Use me however you would to advance the kingdom, your kingdom in this world. I pray that same prayer for each and every person who calls Cedar Mill home. And Lord, as we come and we take the elements, we're we're reminded of the fact that serving is a response to your service for us, that we give our lives because you first gave your life for us. So fuel us, restore us, lift us with your grace that we might be your people and that you'd get the glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.